Welcome to episode 233 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have Grammy Award winner Vince Giordano to share with us his experiences, his love of jazz, in particular the jazz standards, how he is a curator a scholar, a practitioner of jazz music, given the fact that he has worked with, since being a young boy, the likes of the great Gershwin, Artie Shaw, Glenn Miller, how he works with people such as Martin Scorsese on The Aviator, the great film, and the great HBO drama Boardwalk Empire, Woody Allen, He's worked with his most recent film, Cafe Society. He put together the score and is also on screen as himself, the band leader. Vince Giordano and the Nighthawks is his group. We talk about the importance of jazz to our culture. Such a cool cat. They just finished up a documentary on him titled Vince Giordano. There's a future in the past. It's, it's a wonderful conversation, and I'm excited to share it with you. We also have an essay by our associate producer and resident essayist, Dr. Michael Pavis, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare, titled Tenderfoot. We have an essay by yours truly titled Relativity Ride and a poem called Prickly Pears. And as is always the case, all of this is ensconced supported and initiated through the verve of several great tunes, a couple of which are by the aforementioned Vince Giordano. So let's get to it. Without further ado, episode 233, just for you, of Troubadours and Rock on Tours.
relativity ride. The Samsung Galaxy and the Apple II, we suppose, are far superior to the artistic and technical galaxy that predates them by a century or two. Who would even venture farther back into the drawer of history? Only those urchins obsessed with making even the score. All that jazz, the never known names, the souls that did not know financial success, K Street games, mass media empty, fullness or fame. Those are the ones who brought it home to this place today. How wondrous, I surmise, it would seem if they were able to glean the fruit of their dreams. And yet, too, the waning movement of dangerous reckoning toward the salvation promised with creation of some melody completely original and new. While at the wayside, old players lean kind of blue as the electric media literally buzzes them over and out into a kerfuffle gilded myriad of direction until barely anyone can sing knowingly the origin of their name. Yet our instinct sense of substance and multicultural human hide is all about teeming in succulent splendor without remorse, but instead only healthy pride as all past, present, and future simultaneous continue the glorious relativity ride. One, two, one, two. Beans could get 
Hello, Vince Giordano. This is Lawrence from Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Nice to have you on the program. Yes, how are you? I am doing fine. How have you been? Pretty, pretty good, thank you, sir. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to be on the program. Um, I'd like to maybe share a little background with the listeners, and then I'll start throwing some questions at you, if you don't mind. That sounds great. Okay, let's uh, start off by letting folks know that you're a Grammy winner, New York native, multi-instrumentalist. Uh, you've been in many nightclubs playing and appeared in several films, pretty uh, impressive films. The Cotton Club, The Aviator, Finding Forrester, Revolutionary Road, mm-hmm. uh, HBO's Boardwalk Empire, one of my favorites. And um, you've also been at the Lincoln Center, Jazz at the Lincoln Center, the Newport Jazz Festival. You've uh, done soundtracks for Boardwalk Empire. You uh, also have worked with Terry Zwigoff and Ghost World, Tamara Jenkins, The Savages, Robert De Niro's The Good Shepherd you've been involved with, uh, Sam Mendes, Away We Go, Michael Mann's film Public Enemies, the list goes on and on. It's and pretty, man, you've done your homework. <laughs> I've done a little homework. Uh, <laughs> and uh, right now there, there is um, a Woody Allen movie out that you did the soundtrack for, Cafe Society. Yeah, we're on screen for that one, too. We're a four-piece band, but um, it started as a 16-piece band, then went down to eight, and then went down to four. <laughs> so Hooray get, for Hollywood. Hooray <laughs> for... Yeah, I'm sure it was budgetary, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, also there's... A really compelling, from what I understand, I haven't seen it yet. I was looking for it on Netflix. It wasn't there yet. I guess you have to get the DVD in the mail. But there is a documentary about you, Vince Giordano. There's a future in the past. Yeah, that's right. Well, thank you, sir, for, again, taking time to be on the program. And uh, Thank you for you taking time to having me on the program. <laughs> oh, it's my pleasure. It really is. I'm a big fan. Um, thank you. I'd like to ask you, first of all, just so people get a little background information, your your early interest in, in jazz standards, uh, how did how did you find yourself find uh, getting involved in, in you know the love that you have obviously for for jazz standards? How did this happen? Well, it started when I was really young. I was five years old, and uh, uh, I was originally born in Brooklyn. But when I was two, I moved out to Smithtown, Long Island, and. Uh, Every holiday, we would go into back to Brooklyn to visit my grandparents, and uh, they had a phonograph. Uh, they were married in 1923, and they had this old Victrola. And eventually, I found out about this, and I was able to wind up the machine and uh, carefully place the old 78 on the platter and put the heavy tone arm on there. And uh, uh, this was really a great discovery for me because. Uh, in those years, in the, in the 1950s, growing up and listening to AM pop radio, there was just wonderful things like, how much is this doggy in the window, and oh my papa. It was like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> and here is this fantastic syncopated jazz music that uh, really just grabbed me. I said, this is really my music. And my parents and all my friends could not understand what I was doing with this music, but um, it just became my life and my calling. And also, coming home from school in those years, uh, we still had the old Warner Brothers black and white cartoons 
uh, from the early 30s on, and the Little Rascals and Laurel and Hardy, and there was a lot of that music that was steeped in in uh, the jazz age, uh, the 20s feel, and they had jazz soloists in there. So that would reinforce my, my love for it. And so you started taking lessons, or did you teach yourself? I, t- I took the violin up in the third grade um, uh, because I got a good grade on the music aptitude test, uh, which is kind of an unfortunate uh, decision. I did not have a good time with the violin or the teacher. She was, uh, <laughs> she was crazy, just to say something. <laughs> and uh, I didn't do anything with music until um, the seventh grade. And uh, there was a junior-senior high school out in rural Long Island, a, a city called Hop Hog, H-A-U-P-P-A-U-G-E. Anyway, uh, I went to the band room and I said, look, I, I want to play the trumpet, the trombone, and clarinet. He says, we have too many of those kids. What we really need is a tuba player because our, our tuba player is graduating next year. So I said, all right, let me try. And uh, I got a tuba and uh, I made some awful noise on it, and this teacher said, you sound great. <laughs> so that was a very <laughs> different approach to my violin teacher. And uh, uh, I started uh, listening, and uh, and one fateful day I was uh, listening to one of my old phonograph records. I was still continuing buying them and getting them from my grandparents, and I tried to play along with an old recording and of course I failed miserably because I didn't have enough musical experience to know about uh, key changes and and, then chord changes but I could feel the beat and it was that fateful day I must have been about 12 or 13 years old that I said I want to play this music that I love now in my lifetime and so I started uh, seeking out uh, bands that not Long Island that had vintage repertoire, mostly what we call Dixieland bands or banjo bands, and, uh, and I was still studying uh, privately, you know, on, on the bass and the tuba, and uh, eventually I became this young fella, of course I couldn't drive there, Either my dad would have to take me or one of the older band members who was like 17 or 18 to take me to a gig, and uh, I started gigging uh, at 14 years old. Wow, that must have been an experience. Did you come across some of the greats while you were doing that? Well, eventually I did, uh, when uh, I started looking in the old Union books to see who was alive from those those times. And the most important uh, discovery was a fellow that I was reading about quite a lot uh, named Bill Chalice. And Bill Chalice was an arranger who worked originally with Gold, Gene Goldkett's band and Paul Whiteman. He laid on and worked with Fletcher Henderson and, and the Casaloma band and Artie Shaw. Uh, and I find his name listed in the directory, and he lived on the south shore of Long Island called Massapequa. And I was too afraid to call him. I was you know, maybe 15 years old. So I wrote him a letter. And uh, I first of all, I asked him if he was the same Bill Chalice that worked with Paul Whiteman and was good friends with Bix Beiderbeck. And uh, he would consider giving me lessons on arranging. And he wrote back and says, yes, he was the same fellow. So I would go to his place every Saturday morning, and it really wasn't arranging that he taught me. He taught me this uh, sort of interesting program called Schillinger, written by a guy named Joseph Schillinger, who uh, came to the States in the early 30s. And he had people in there like Ferdy Groffet, Artie Shaw was there, even had George Gershwin and Bill Chalice all studying 
this uh, way of combining music and math and math and music. And uh, the great Schillinger asked uh, Gershwin, what are you doing here? I says, I should be studying with you. He says, Gershwin says, well, I'm thinking that maybe I might be repeating myself, and I want to find a new option and new ways to compose and rearrange things. And, uh, and Glenn Miller was also there, by the way, and wow. his, uh, his theme, uh, Moonlight Serenade, was actually the Schillinger exercise. But that was that. Uh, we did that for one hour, and then I'd be there and maybe another hour or two hours and really get all the lowdown on great musicians that Bill worked with, like Bing Crosby and uh, Joe Venuti and uh, uh, fellows in the Fletcher Henderson band and Artie Shaw and the Casaloma band. So, and through him, I met a lot of people who worked in the 1920s, like Joe Tardo, and I studied a little bit with him, who made thousands of recordings with all the big uh, bands of that time, like uh, like the Sam Lennon and and uh, and, uh, and Freddie Rich and uh, uh, Ben Sullivan, and uh, and then uh, a drummer named Chauncey Morehouse, who worked with the Goldkett Band and with Bix and Joe Venuti. So, uh, and then many other people. I. I don't know how much time I can talk, but I can talk till the cows come home. But it, it started my whole interest in finding these people and asking them uh, what they could tell me uh, about working in those days and the certain people that I, I worked that they worked with. So it was a, it was a great experience. Man, what an experience! Uh, the opportunity <laughs> you had to work with some of the I mean the the legends, the icons. Uh, yeah, and, and and now you've basically have carried that on in your own uh, career, your own artistic endeavors. Uh, you're known to be a curator, a scholar, a practitioner of jazz. Uh, you have, a, I hear, an incredible collection at, at, your, at your home. Yeah, uh, I, have to, I actually have two houses here. I, have, I bought the house next door, too, because I ran out of room, and in, like a uh, captain on star trek would say space is the final frontier <laughs> and and now i know what he was talking about i've got sixty thousand arrangements and over thirty seven thousand pieces of sheet music that was published and it's still coming in i still have new things coming in via ebay or or garage sales or collectors who contact me and it's just mind-boggling to know how productive those songwriters were and those arrangers they just wrote and wrote and wrote. And, you know, not all of it is gold, but it's interesting to see. And, and I've rescued a lot of stuff from theaters that uh, were being torn down or music was being thrown out. I cleaned out four theaters that were around in the 1920s, and they had working musicians uh, in these theaters, one in St. Louis, one in uh, Buffalo, New York, and two in uh, New Jersey. And I was able to rescue this stuff that, was probably going to be thrown out. And unfortunately, a lot of stuff that I couldn't get to was thrown out. And this, now a lot of it, I mean, you, you can't possibly, no one in a lifetime can possibly work with all of the pieces you have and then perform them all, but I, I presume you take them and you put your own sort of spin on them. Uh, uh, you, you rearrange maybe, I'm not certain. And, yeah. And, and uh, that must be fun. It is. Uh, uh, particularly when we were working on Boardwalk, uh, they would have a list of tunes that they wanted us to record, and they had 78 RPM references of certain bands. And uh, so I would listen to that 
band of 80, 90 years ago and then see the written arrangement that I have and make some comparisons and, uh, and modulations and, and uh, for, for different singers that we had to work with. But I'm, I just wanted to be true to the original sound of those years and what, what musicians would have been playing. Uh, and thank goodness we have all this stuff on record to, to listen to, and now that people have the Internet, it's even greater. I remember as a young guy uh, calling up a collector and getting in my car with a reel-to-reel tape recorder and pleading with him to let me tape something uh, that I could not find. Uh, now today it's it's on YouTube or the Red Hot Jazz archives, so, and you don't have to go anywhere. You could be sitting here just lounging around in your living room. Right, and just type in what you want, and boop, there it is. Yeah. And do you find a lot of people coming around? I would imagine you do, and saying, hey, do you have this? Do you have that? Can I see it? Besides the, the, all the other artists, the filmmakers, and, and uh, you know, the, the HBO series that you've been involved in, those producers coming to you and saying, do this for us. Do you find other people coming and saying, can I get access, and are you willing to give them access to your, your treasure trove? Well, sometimes, some stuff, I mean, a lot of stuff, I, believe it or not, even with all that music that I just told you, those numbers, I don't have everything. And there was a lot of stuff out there that was what we call special material, material that was written especially for that band, or I just can't find it. You know, it, it's, it's one of these things that have slipped through the, the cracks. Um, but we, get, we take requests. A lot of times you know, when we work uh, on Mondays and Tuesdays at a place called Iguana, in New York City, people will email me or phone me, say, I'm coming in, and do you have this song or any any songs from this film or uh, a Broadway show from the, from the 20s and 30s? So if I have it, I'll bring it out, and I make a Xerox of it, and I uh, pass it out to the fellas, and uh, I wish everyone good luck because we're sight reading, and I to tell the folks that this is the rehearsal and the performance all rolled into one. <laughs> yeah, I think the Iguana is where my associate producer met you, uh, Michael Pavis, and, and got, yes. his, got you hooked up with the show. That's uh, right. Now, the, what, was it, what is it like working with, uh, and, and can, give us a little insight what it's like working on set for, with and, and uh, for someone like uh, Martin Scorsese or with Robert De Niro, Woody Allen, uh, the, the folks who produce Boardwalk Empire? How... How, how, does that, uh, how does that happen? What does it feel like? Is it fun? Is it drudgery? <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's not all peaches and cream, you know, but uh, it, you know, there's, there's some hard work involved. Um, I got involved with film with uh, the fortunate meeting of a great artist by the name of Dick Hyman, who just celebrated his 90th birthday. And I was in the city uh, at a re- record store going through a bunch of records, and uh, I looked over, and there's a fellow looking through uh, jazz piano LPs. Uh, this has got to be, I don't know, late 70s. And I said, uh, pardon me, are you Dick Hyman? He said, well, yes, I am. I said, well, I just want to shake your hand and thank you for all that you've done and your, your artist degree and uh, what, what you are doing uh, for all styles of jazz piano. And I, I guess I was a little, uh, <laughs> I had an extra cup of coffee that day. I just felt very bold. And I said, if you ever uh, would love to hear me play the, my instruments, tuba, string bass, or bass sax, I'd, and have a need for someone who plays in period 1920s, 30s style, I would love to audition for you. And he took my card and thank you, and we shook hands. 
And about a few months later, uh, he called me, and I got a chance to work on one of his films called Zelig. And uh, so that led to more Woody Allen films. And under the baton of Dick Hyman, I was just uh, sidemen, what we call, and playing my, my three instruments, and, uh, but getting uh, a reputation. And then we got a call to do the Cotton Club, uh, where they needed a small combo. They come down to a club that we were working at called the Red Blazer 2. I said, we only need four people, uh, four or five. Would you be interested? I said, sure. And we filmed that over at Astoria Studios. That's where the Marx Brothers did uh, Coconuts. And uh, so I was starting to get this little reputation of uh, a young fellow who likes to play this music and has a lot of charts and, uh, and uh, has a, a band that's, that's ready to go. So uh, we did Ghost World, which was uh, uh, a great uh, film with uh, Terry Zweigoff. And from there, uh, the production team, a fellow named Randall Poster, uh, who does a lot of uh, uh, getting uh, music consulting on films, he heard the film and, and uh, called me and said, uh, we, we're doing this film with The Aviator, uh, and that uh, we'd love to... Uh, see if you could work and that was with Scorsese so I said well uh, sure you let's see what we can do and it worked out so well that uh, uh, when Boardwalk Empire came it was Scorsese again and it was uh, Randall posters and they needed a band to play 1920s music so we we got working that and uh, for five years on that um, basically the the big stars that you mentioned um, I have very, very little contact with them. They'll come in, they'll say, uh, this looks good, this sounds good, can we make it a little faster, can we make it a little slower? And that's pretty much it, because they have so many other details on their plate uh, with uh, the cinematography and getting the actors in and out and, 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 and people on the sidelines and uh, making sure the script and the microphone placement is correct. So... Um, uh, you know, I, I can't say that I that I have any long extended conversations with these all these stars. It's been very minimal, but 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 you know, they know who I am, and and I'm I'm just happy to be there. Some of the shooting schedules are are very hard, uh, particularly like in Boardwalk Empire. We our first uh, sh- shoot day was something like six o'clock in the morning, that you have to arrive on set and you get to make up and you get a haircut and. Uh, and fitted. We were on old vintage tuxedos from the 1919-1920 period, which are, are wool. They're not like today. Oh, wow. And uh, you get up on the platform, which is high and elevated, where the band was in those uh, scenes. And as you know, heat and, uh, and smoke rises. There were people in this club, it was called Babette's Club, uh, smoking these uh, herbal cigarettes. So all that stuff is coming up on you, and the light, you know. So you're really dying up there. It's it's hot and it's long, and you eventually take a break, and uh, then you get up back in the sweat box, and we, everybody loses at least uh, <laughs> two or three pounds every day being on there. But it's uh, it's good to be part of this whole scene and being part of history, and I and I'm very lucky that here I live live in. Uh, I'm able to participate in films. Uh, usually, you would think you'd have to be in Los Angeles to uh, to be there, but um, you could live at home, New York City, and do all this great stuff. 
Yeah, and 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 the scenes for Boardwalk were shot in Brooklyn, believe it or not. So <laughs> making a six a.m. Uh, call wasn't exactly the most pleasant thing, but it, I didn't have to leave at two in the morning. Right, and I imagine it must be quite a <clears throat> a, a buzz and, and very much uh, a sense of. I don't know, accomplishment for you as an artist, as a professional, to be working at this level. You know, these are some of the best artists uh, and producers in in the world, and thus you must be one of the best. I guess they wouldn't hire you if you weren't. Uh, wow. it, it must be pretty. It must be pretty fulfilling in many regards. It is. It's. 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 Uh, you know, something that I dreamed about as a young person. And I got a lot of flack from a lot of people. I said, what, what are you talking about? This is old music. This is grandpa and grandma's music. And this will never come back. And you'll never, you know, do anything that you want. This is a pipe dream, Vince. And, well, okay. <laughs> but sometimes dreams do come true. So I'm very fortunate that I am able to do all the things that I have in, in the last 42 years with this repertory music and the band and meeting all these people and and uh, and it, it, we're having a renaissance i think uh of this music uh, we're having a lot of young people uh, c- moving to new york city who've who come from canada and uh, europe and uh, uh different parts of of america to play in new york with traditional jazz and repertory jazz music of the of ragtime in 20s and 30s and they're all in their 20s and I want to say to all these young kids, I said, where were you when I was starting out 40 years ago? And, of course, the answer is they weren't born yet, <laughs> which is kind of unfortunate. But I'm, I'm getting to see these people who are digging Big Spiderbeck and, and, uh, and, uh, and Louis Armstrong and early Duke Ellington. And uh, I said, wow, this is really great. And a lot and from time to time as substitutes, and, uh, and they're really uh, great players. Well, and, and that you give me an opportunity to to get into the documentary a bit. I mean, the, there's a future in the past is the name of it, yeah. Vince Giordano, and uh, you, you mentioned how it's a, it's pretty uh, amazing uh, and heartening to you that young people are appreciating this music, and then how in the when you were younger, folks would question why are you grabbing onto something that is is from the past, but yeah. it seems it's it's not really the past. No, I, I think this music is, is really timeless. I think you get into Gershwin and uh, early Duke Ellington and, 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 and Fats Waller, and this stuff is, is, is just as moving as it was when it, when it appeared 80, 90 years ago, and it still makes people tap their feet and have a good time. Um, and it's not like someone comes to hear it and I think, oh, geez, this this was terrible this took forever to get through i get a lot of people that uh, come to me at the end of an evening and i said you know i came to hear you and i wasn't in a great spirit or a great frame of mind this and this is happening and and now this music has brought me into a new place and i feel happy and i'm uh I'm even better off than going to see my psych. <laughs> my shrink. <laughs> I hear you. So that's good. Well, in, in a way, you're acting as as a as a sort of a healer in in your capacity as as an artist, as a musician for these folks. That that you're changing their their whole attitude. So that's you know, kudos to you. And our music is that way for me as well. I think for most people. Now, the the um, 
documentary itself, how is it, how is it doing? Is it, is it getting uh, some traction or, or are you getting some nice uh, responses? It's really doing very good. Um, the last uh, six months or so, they had me uh, kind of traveling the country with it. I was out in Los Angeles and uh, Texas and Indiana and uh, Portland, uh, New Jersey. We played it a few times here in New York and uh, sometimes with the band, sometimes just with the filmmakers and myself. And then we have a question and answer. And just a few days ago, it finally came out on DVD. So, um, so people are finally able to buy it. But it's been a it's been a five year process uh, when they started filming and then uh, going through all the different editing and then filming some more. And then we had music clearance and fundraisers. Uh, you know, uh, what's what's the, uh, the term that they use when they put money into uh, a project? Indiegogo and all that stuff. So it's finally out, and uh, you can go to my website if you just type in Vince Giordano on Google, and and you'll see how to get it and uh, the cost and all that stuff. And uh, the people that ha- have gone to see it are now showing up at my gig, and they said, wow, you know, we had no idea about this music or where to find you, and uh, so... Hopefully, uh, this will keep me alive in the business another six months. <laughs> another say, I think maybe a little longer than that, sir. Now, I'm just being cute. Yeah. Yeah, I know, I know. You're being you're being humorous and humble. You're you're one of the yeah. greats, sir. It's nice to have you on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. And I, you know, I want to ask you as a scholar, as someone with such experience uh, in this, you know, the this great American creation. Uh, that is jazz, in particular the standards. Why, why, why do you think it's so important? And and how, and do you think it's it's uniquely from the culture of our country? Oh, definitely. Uh, jazz happened in the U.S. It, it, the U.S. Is, uh, the United States being the melting pot, where you have all these different cultures. We have all these wonderful people. We have African American people. We have German, we have Jewish, we have Italian, French, Spanish, and I could go on and on. I don't want to leave any group out, but each of these people brought something to this country, and it all got mixed in uh, to something called jazz, and where we took melodies and then started improvising and starting to tell new little stories based on the chord changes or some of the melodies that are in there. And uh, these pioneers uh, that, start, that started this in the 1920s uh, really uh, started a whole movement. And when these recordings uh, went to Europe and Asia, all of a sudden this music changed the world because you found musicians playing in this style there and they 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 sometimes copied note for note and then they developed their own style you take a fellow like Django Reinhardt who grew up listening to of course his gypsy music but bought Louis Armstrong records and uh so he was very influenced by Louis Armstrong and uh uh and that's that's a, a really fantastic movement that really really didn't happen too much the other way around you know where where I mean, I've heard a lot of European composers, but, but it was more classical what they were doing there. I mean, there were some songwriters, 
uh, you know, in, in France and England and Germany that we've adopted and uh, and used. But uh, I think the jazz movement, though, and the jazz age really uh, changed the world. I agree. I agree. So, Mr. Giordano, what, uh, what, uh, what's going on in the future? Any uh, projects you want to talk about? Uh, some gigs you want to share with the listeners? Maybe they could uh, keep an eye and ear open for? <laughs> well, the best way is to go to my website uh, to, to keep current. Because is this show uh, being put out on the air right now, live? Or is this recorded and going to be played later? We're going to be... Uh, I'm recording this, and I piece it together with a bunch of uh, different components and we'll be airing it uh, this Sunday. So it's a few days before uh, we, we actually air it and then we send it out in podcast form too after it's aired on the radio station. Okay. All right. I mean, uh, what comes to mind right off the bat, I don't have my calendar in front of me, but Wednesday, uh, I think it's July 19th, we're going to be at Dizzy's Club in New York City and we're going to be saluting the jazz arranger Don Redman. Don Redmond was a saxophonist and arranger. Actually, he played a bunch of instruments and sang a little bit, and he worked with Fletcher Henderson and the, the McKinney's band and later his own band and was a, a ranger who used to work on a lot of different uh, projects and bands. And he was he was just a giant, and they're, they're saluting him. Uh, they found his daughter, and they're going to give an award to her. So it's going to be a real festive night. And every Monday and Tuesday, we're at Iguana on West 54th Street uh, in New York City from 8 to 11. And you can, again, find that on my website. And we have recordings, and uh, we have a, a film coming up, but I don't know when when it's even going to start production. But it's a, another film that's set in the 1920s, so that's good. And uh, so we're, we're we're still we're still keeping up and uh, and producing some great music and having fun. I, I can hear that. I can hear that in your voice. Now, uh, <laughs> one last thing, sir. We're just about out of time, but any words of encouragement for aspiring uh, musicians, artists, and such? Well, to young people, um, you have to listen a lot. Listen, listen, listen to the great masters because you can learn so much from them. And you have to work. Uh, anything that's well worth doing, you have to to work at it. It's just it's not easy. It's not like sharpening a pencil or making some toast. You know, you have to rehearse and you have to practice. It, now we have a lot of technology that like you can record your performance or your ensemble's performance and then listen to it after and discuss it. How we can get better. There's always room for improvement, and I'm always trying to get to the next rung of the ladder of improvement. And, uh, uh, and, 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 and don't forget about publicity, too. You've got to get the word out. Whatever you're doing, it can't be a secret. And now today, again, with Internet, it's so much easier to get the word out and uh, with emails and blogs and YouTube and, and things like that. So it's all there, but it's not easy. You... <laughs> you have to roll up your sleeves a little bit. Thank you so much, sir. It's nice. It was a pleasure talking with a master on today's program. I wish you the best, and uh, hopefully we'll see you at the Iguana Club soon. I hope so. Thank you, Lawrence. Take, Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.
Tenderfoot. To my everlasting shame, I left the Boy Scouts at Tenderfoot. At the time, the lowest rank. I never ascended to second class, first class, star, life, or eagle. I can't remember how I ended up joining the Scouts in the first place. It wasn't a predilection for hiking trails, exploring forests, making fires, or tying knots. I'd rather spend a sunny summer day in an air-conditioned movie theater, leaving the exploits to the actors. I believe a friend's father persuaded me. He was a kindly postman 
who had taken fatherless me to a father and son breakfast at our church. An Irishman with a brood of children, he was involved in all the parish groups and was one of the scoutmasters. Like many troops, ours was associated with a church, and so, after donning the olive uniform and red neckerchief, on Thursday nights, I'd head to the auditorium of my parish grade school that served as our meeting place. In addition to hiking and character building, the scouts encouraged camaraderie, all for one and one for all, to borrow a phrase. But aside from the friend I already had, who happened to be in the troop, I didn't bond much with my fellow scouts. The older boys, inching their way up in rank, seemed condescending and arrogant, sometimes almost hostile. I suppose that's how they toughened up new recruits. These older boys had chips on their shoulders. On the one hand, they were proud of their achievements and enjoyed the activities. On the other, it was decidedly uncool to be a scout at the time, and as they made their way through the neighborhood to the school auditorium wearing their pressed uniforms, they probably dreaded being spied by their shaggy high school classmates, more interested in downing quarts of Colt 45 in the woods or listening to Led Zeppelin in their basements than in archery or backpacking or collecting newspapers for a charity drive. I remember a session with one of our troop leaders. He was a high-ranking and long-serving scout, a junior or senior in high school. In a casually racist way, he was nicknamed China because of his squinty eyes. He managed to balance his time in the scouts with academic and athletic success. He was friendly, funny, and a bit of a goofball. I think he became a doctor. That night, we recited our pledge, attended to business, some community service, or an upcoming camping trip, or one scout's promotion, and then we huddled in small groups with our leaders as if we were around a campfire. Rather than scare us with a ghost story, China chose to titillate us with a tale he had just read in a dirty magazine, a pulpy rag featuring light bondage, erotic escapades, and smudgy black-and-white photos of nude, busty women frolicking among the splendors of nature. The story involved a chief of an African tribe and his genitals. For some reason, the chief's genitals continually needed a good scrubbing by his consort, I believe, his wife and witch doctor, apparently otherwise engaged. She scrubbed and scrubbed, China whispered lasciviously, his eyes beaming with an unscout-like lust. The younger scouts listened raptly and searched for a life lesson, perhaps one to mull over as we helped little old ladies across busy downtown streets. My one adventure in scouts was a weekend excursion to Goose Pond in the middle of the winter. We stayed in a cabin, ate beans, and ventured out into the bitter cold for activities I have successfully blocked from my memory. Ice fishing? Possible, but unlikely. I can't picture the troop gathered on the pond with their poles, ears attuned to the sound of breaking ice. I spent most of the time burrowed in my bunk, suffering blasts of wind when a fellow scout braved the cold for a trip to the outhouse and praying for deliverance from this frozen hell. 
I was never an outdoorsy type, and in fact I had no interest in rugged survival skills, in pitching tents, in fishing for my supper, determining direction from a compass or the moss on trees. If I were lost in the woods, my tactic would be to sit in a tree and wait for the inevitable embrace of death. The main reason I wanted to be a scout was to obtain my theater merit badge. In order to advance in rank, scouts had to earn many badges in such areas as life-saving, woodworking, and kayaking. And by the time they reached Eagle Scout, they donned a sash as resplendent with honors as the chest of a third-world dictator. My sash would have had one badge. I spied the cheaply printed instructional booklet, probably written in the late 50s or early 60s, in the scouting section of a local department store, and I was enchanted. Keep your knots and knives and canteens and pup tents. Give me costumes and makeup and spotlights. Get me out of the forest and onto the stage. Unfortunately, I never got beyond the booklet. It's no easy task obtaining a merit badge, and I decided to pursue theater without the sanction of the Boy Scouts of America. I quietly and ignobly resigned, or perhaps I just stopped going to meetings. I avoided the accusing eyes of my former band of brothers at church and school. I hung up my uniform and stuffed my neckerchief in a drawer. A scout, as we know, is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. As Mama Rose sings in Gypsy, that's peachy for some people.
prickly pears, a plate of prickly pears that had grown wild alongside the Ionian Sea and olive grove hills, the old sunlight nourishing them through the salt air dry as the wood wire fence guides my steps. I pull apart with deep love and bring with my wrist and long fingers into my mouth after a kiss on my lips to taste the lavish past in this new, sweet, solitary moment of history. Oh, no. 
And there you have it, episode 233 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks that made this episode possible. First and foremost, Vince Giordano. Thank you so much for sharing with us your passion, your journey, your work, your music. We'd like to thank also Dr. Michael Pavis, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare, for another fantastic essay. We like to thank these musical artists as well. Glenn Miller and Benny Goodman, Vince Giordano and Kat Edmondson, Herbie Hancock, George Gershwin, the L.A. Philharmonic, Pino Daniele, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Terrence Blanchard, and Brentford Marsalis, too. Until next week, enjoy this one. Thank you for listening.